0: Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Trinity. I love opening God's word with you every uh, week. Uh, if you'll open your Bible to Leviticus 10 or in your bulletins, and let me begin with some introduction. When I was growing up, I had a neighbor who I liked very much. He was a nice kid. Uh, but it was his older sister, Barbie, who caught the attention, really of the entire neighborhood. Now, she was pretty, but that wasn't it. Uh, Barbie tragically lost both of her arms when she was young. And nevertheless, she was incredibly resourceful. She could write and draw with her feet, beautiful pictures, gorgeous handwriting. She played cards. She was really spectacular, really spectacular. Now, what happened was when she was young, uh, there was a severe storm that passed through Texas and some power lines had fallen down. the wires were still alive, of course, and as you can imagine, this young little girl went to the lines, grabbed them, and she was severely electrocuted, and both arms had to be amputated. Now, when you and I hear that story, it awakens our sympathy. Uh, we're, We're sensitive, of course, but no one says, wow, electricity is too harsh, right? I mean, we mourn, but we don't like Necessarily blame God. We don't say that, uh, we don't say it like that because we understand the inherent and unforgiving properties of electricity, right? Uh, Electricity is not a, a, a power to be handled casually. You must proceed carefully. Well, this morning, we continue in our sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. And we've begun studying Leviticus, and today, this morning, we're studying a story about two brothers, uh, both priests, Nadab and Abihu, and both of these men get dead, right? They die when God's holy fire consumed them. And I would argue that that story, this story that we're going to study, has some really important analogies uh, to my friend Barbie grabbing the electrical lines, but even as I say that, even as I say that, we have such deep cultural intuitions that make it really difficult to learn from the story about Nadab and Abihu. Uh, these are the texts that we read when, God, uh, when people say to God, um, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in that God. I, I think God is love or or." I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, right? Well, here's the problem. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And so we've got to take this text seriously. But how did we get here? Because this text hasn't always been so off-putting. Well, in our modern times, most of us have a set of implicit priorities and expectations about what God should be like or what we think God is like. In fact, the sociologist, his name's Christian Smith, um, he has summarized our, our cultural religion with, with the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. A, a moralistic therapeutic deist believes that, that God made the world. He watches over it. He believes that uh, God wants man to be good and nice and fair to each other. He believes that God's goal for humanity is to, is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Uh, a, a therapeutic moralist deist believes that God is not involved in the life on a day-to-day basis, but you can give him a call in serious circumstances. And lastly, he believes that generally good people go to heaven when they die. That is the theology of a moralistic therapeutic deist. And if all of that makes sense to you with no rub, then this story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 that we're about to study is absolutely intolerable. In fact, you will find most of the Bible intolerable. Even Jesus, when you start reading the fine print, will become intolerable. But if that is you, if that is you, I want you to be aware of your belief frameworks that actually keep Jesus quite domesticated. This passage that we're going to study this morning isn't making Jesus smaller. To the contrary, I want you to get more of Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament says that all of these Old Testament stories are about him. And so we need these stories to help us unlock the immensity of Jesus Jesus, the embodied presence of God, is formidable. And I want you to know him for who he truly is, not just a cultural religion. And the story of Nadab and Abihu, he's gonna, it's going to help us with that. Now let me set it up, and then we're going to get to the text. Um, as we've discussed before, man is built For the presence of God. But God's presence is formidable. It is dangerous. We can't just run up to God because his holiness would incinerate us, right, as sinners. So to sinners, God's presence is a consuming fire. So God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle to house his immediate presence. So God moved into the neighborhood, all right? But in order to enjoy God's presence, you had to go through extensive preparation that included sacrifices and priests and purity laws. So last week, we studied the sacrificial system. So Leviticus 1-7 to gives us a lot of details about how to make an offering. Then in chapter 8, the priestly system is inaugurated. Priests are consecrated. Then in chapter 9, Aaron, the chief priest, makes the initial offering. And God accepts it by consuming it with a fire. And listen, this is like a huge occasion. This is like working so hard on the Christmas tree and then just finally plugging it in and watching it light up. Or like working away on a car and finally turning the ignition and hearing the car purr and roar, right? When God accepted this initial offering, this was a huge moment in the life of Israel. Their hearts were exploding. Optimism abounded. But when they saw the power of God wielded, they got careless. They thought that God's power could be controlled. They thought God's presence and power could be domesticated with sacrificial laws and priestly rituals, and they were wrong, right? God's presence is formidable, and as we shall see in this narrative, both the priests and the law are misused in an attempt to domesticate God. Both the priestly rituals and the law are insufficient in that they give us this false confidence. They're misleading in a certain way. And this has everything to do with you, modern Christian. So with that introduction, let's give our attention to this text. Please, in reverence to God's word, please stand. This is Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and el and the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, who the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God will endure forever. May bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was uh, when I was young, I loved He-Man. Y'all remember that cartoon? For you guys, do okay. I also kind of liked She-Ra, but we're not going to talk about that part of my childhood storytelling. But um, so the story of He-Man is about a guy. That when he grabs a sword and says, By the power of Grayskull, he can domesticate, contain, and wield the power of the universe. Brilliant concept. So in my neighborhood, all the kids played He-Man together. Whoever had the sword was He-Man. Everyone else is Skeletor. Thankfully, I would received the sword from a Toys R Us on my birthday. Everyone knew the rules. Whoever had the sword had the power. So one day, I grab the sword, I say the words, boom, I am dominating all the kids on my street. It appeared that I had true power because all the kids had to escape and look for safety. And we didn't have video games back then, so we had active imaginations, all right? So while I was like joyfully throwing my weight around, having what it seemed to me, wielding and controlling the power of the universe by my sword, My older brother comes along. Now, he's a teenager. I jump in front of him, and I say, by the power of grayskull, stand down, peasant. My brother, I reasoned, surely could not stand against the power of the universe that I had contained in my sword. And so what happened next? In a matter of seconds, my brother rips that sword out of my hands and whips my backside, leaving welts on my legs, right? I thought that i contained the power of the universe and clearly the power of the universe could not be controlled by a person reciting a simple formula can i suggest to you that that silly little illustration is describing what's happening in our passage today and, l- and let me explain right the day before all the priests they got their shiny new priest uniforms They're feeling really good about themselves. That same morning, Nadab and Abihu's father, Aaron, followed the precise formula to make an offering to God. And when he did, like clockwork, it's it's as if it were at the command of Aaron. The awesome divine fire of God came out, consumed his offering. It was amazing. Nadab and Abihu were impressed. I mean, if their dad could wield... Power with that recipe. Just think of the possibilities. But instead of becoming reverent, Aaron's two oldest sons developed a false confidence in their priestly actions. Now, why would I say that? Well, their actions, what comes next, kind of tell us a story. There are three actions in this text that alert us to Nadab and Abihu's misguided confidence in their priestly function. So first, the story begins immediately in a very ominous tone, right? It says, verse one, that these two young people, they took these censers, all right? We don't know what censers are anymore. They're just these vessels that uh, are for burning incense, okay? So they took their censers, and they went into the tabernacle with a strange fire or an unauthorized fire. Now, that phrase, unauthorized or strange fire, it means this. That the priests were supposed to take the fire, or the coals, from the altar that's located inside of the tabernacle. Those coals were always burning. The priests kept that fire lit day and night. And that fire was first kindled by God himself. The priests didn't start that fire. It had always been burning since the world was turning. Okay, no, okay. That was just for a few of you guys, right? Seriously, that was the Lord's fire. He started it. The priests just maintained it, right? Okay. But Nadab and Abihu, they didn't use those coals, right? They made their own fire. It was a foreign fire. To call it an adulterous fire would be a terrific translation. They wielded the strange fire like I wielded He-Man's sword. To make matters worse... Action number two, they were totally tipsy, totally tipsy. Verse nine, the Lord had to reprimand Aaron about the saying, don't drink any wine or strong drink or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting. Why? These priests are supposed to be mediators between God and Israel and they're drunk, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to get everyone killed. It's like they're pilots on this big old Boeing 747 with a cabin filled with their favorite people and family, and they get into the cockpit, totally wasted. I mean, this is rec- reckless. It's not just bad for them, but they're risking like everyone's lives. And once they were filled with liquid courage and wielding strange fire, like they had God on a leash or something, they stumble. Action number three, into the innermost part of the temple. In verse one, when it says that they went before the Lord, Lord, we learn actually clarifies in chapter 16 in Leviticus that this means that they foolishly went into the holy of holies and it did not work out for them. The same divine fire that consumed the offering in the morning this time consumed them. It's like they were playing with a million volts of electricity. I mean, what did they think was going to happen? God cannot be tamed with their tricks masquerading as religion. Now listen, this entire story gives insight into our hearts, right? Nadab and Abihu represent our human impulses for relating to God. We are either naively casual in approaching God Or we think we can wield his powers by reducing him to some formula. You think I'm making this up? I'll give you a few examples. There's this guy in Kansas City. His name's Mike Bickle. He has this ministry called International House of Prayer. He has written in several places that about how every morning, while he's shaving, that God, a theophany, God incarnate, appears to him, and they just talk. He must be drunk. Listen. That's false. If Jesus, if God were to show up, he would fall down on his face and worship, not finish shaving, you see. Does he know the God that we're speaking of? There's this heretical movement in Protestant circles called Word of Faith. They believe that a person can wield the power of faith through speech. If you speak or if you decree with your mouth and just truly believe it, then you can wield God's power, they say. This is crazy. I mean, they're treating God as if he were a vending machine instead of the consuming fire that he is. We must not come to God with our formulas, pretending like they can contain him to get God to do what we want. Now, most of us We don't have dramatic examples like that. But I promise you, that intuition is still in there. Have you ever said something like this? God, I obeyed you. I gave you money. I went to church. I volunteered at the soup kitchen. I did the formulas, and you let this thing happen. How could you? You hear the hidden logic? We were trying to control God with our actions, and God didn't pull through for us, and so we're disappointed. You and I are not priests, but we are still offering strange, unauthorized fire, hoping that it will serve our purposes. It won't. Don't be misled. Our priestly formulas of good works are insufficient. God will not be domesticated We have wholly underestimated God, even with our wildest imaginations. Humility and reverence, not presumption, is how one must approach God. The Lord will not be tamed. Let's move to the second aspect in this narrative. So first, we examined how the priestly rituals were insufficient and even misleading in a certain way. But now we've got to examine how the law itself is insufficient and even misleading in a certain way. And let me begin by illustrating a uh, a modern phenomena. Let's talk about the NFL. I'm more of a college guy, but let me talk about the NFL. National Football League, a billion-dollar enterprise. This is a sport that has dramatically changed over the years. Now, back in the day, the NFL, they used leather helmets It wasn't dangerous per se because they tackled differently, more like rugby tackling. The sport, relatively speaking, was a simple sport. There were not a lot of rules, but then something changed. The helmet evolved, and they started using hard shell helmets. And when this happened, the head, for the first time in the history of the sport, became a weapon. Helmets became so sophisticated that middle linebackers could come straight at their targets using their heads to crush people. And so the NFL became a factory for producing cripples. People are blowing out knees, concussions are going through the roof. This was bad press, and the players themselves began to protest. The NFL front office used their most powerful tool— rule changes, rule. Every single year, the NFL adds more and more rules. So the simplicity of football from the 1950s has given way to a sport that is almost unrecognizable. Honestly, even with the rules, they're so vague, it's hard to know if anyone's really complying with the rules. And the consensus is, is that the NFL is losing their audience. Why? Because so, there are so many rules. It's so not accessible as a sport. The, the game is starting to lose some of its appeal. But here's the thing. The front office knows this. but these, that They know that these rules aren't great, but their interest is protecting the players even if it changes the game. But rest assured, as the NFL continues, there will only be more and more rules. Even, and even with these rules... No one will ever be sure if they're followed perfectly or if they're actually keeping players safe. Rules can't eliminate the human factor. So why the NFL illustration on Nadab and Abihu Day? It's because rules give us a false confidence. No matter how many rules you have, and you can keep adding them, they're insufficient. That's what we have in this narrative Even the law is insufficient, and it can give this this kind of false confidence. So remember last week we read this very small section of Leviticus chapter 3? Remember, it was a mouthful, right? So much detail, so much repetition, and that was just one small section of Leviticus. We have pages and pages of rules, and guess what? Enough is never enough. This whole narrative is an illustration that even with all the rules they had, they needed more. They needed more. Think about it. In the first three verses of our text, you have the the broken rules of Nadab and Abihu. And and could the rules have been more explicit? I mean, probably. Like maybe they needed some addendums when working with high voltage scenarios. I don't know. But there's more. Beginning in verse 4, Moses calls the cousins to take the bodies out of the tabernacle all the way out of the camp. But then the two younger brothers of Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar, verse 6, he says to them, he says, make sure that you have the right haircut, right? Make sure that you're wearing all the right clothes. You can't can't even leave the tabernacle to go to the funeral like everyone else. Because if you do, verse 7, you're going to die lest you die. What? Like, what did these guys sign up for? Apparently, there are some new rules. Like, like, they are in a minefield. And here's the deal. Yes, they are. The presence of God is like a minefield. It is dangerous. You could die at any second. The reason that these guys couldn't go to the funeral is because if they did, they would have been in proximity to two corpses, By definition, that's what funerals are, right? And by being by a corpse, it makes that person unclean. Look there real quick in verse 10 and 11. It says, You are to distinguish between holy and common, between unclean and clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now listen, another day, I'm going to explain in detail how all of this works, but let me give you the Notes version of verses 10 and 11. Being unclean is not, it was not a sin. It was a state. It was a status. If you are in the state of unclean, it does not mean that you are inherently bad. It simply means that you're not fit to be in God's presence. So you have to move from unclean too clean, and to do so you had to follow a few more rules, a few more rituals, a few more sacrifices, and then you could be in the clean state and therefore enter the tabernacle. But if you rushed into the presence of God in the unclean state, you would die. Remember, everyone knows you just can't approach a holy God any way you want. You can't. That is what the whole warning, the lest you die, is about in verse 7. Verse 7. But here's the tension of the text. The deaths of Nadab and Abihu are just the beginning. The rest of the Old Testament is more rules and more death. Strangely, this text is, te- is teaching every Jew that although the law is necessary, it is insufficient. There will never be enough rules And rules are not the goal. The rules are not what give you life. The rules cannot save you. It's the God whom the rules point to. And so if the rules can't save you, then what's the point? Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, good Jew, very educated in Jewish law, acquainted with the Torah, he responds to this question like this. This is Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Listen to this. He says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that is the Messiah, should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place by an intermediary. Verse 21 So then the law was our guardian, the law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, no longer under a tutor, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, here's what that means. In some strange way, the law created this pseudo-protective barrier, a fence, okay, a fence. But even back then, everyone was meant to long for something more. A Jew was not meant to fall in love with the law. He's not trying to fall in love with the fence. It had a purpose, but it was not the point. And so this narrative, our narrative this morning, dramatically demonstrates the insufficiency of the law to give us what we really want, what we're really after. If the law was the point, then what we need is more and more laws. But the law is not the point. It's supposed to stir in you this uneasiness deep in your soul until you rest only in Jesus Christ. So Jesus fulfills the law and offers you security in the presence of God. Are you listening to me? Some of you have been living your entire Christian life as if it were just a bunch of rules that you have to fulfill to make sure that God likes you. And if you live like that, your joy is just one misstep away from being wiped out by a million volts of electricity, one little bit of suffering or tragedy, and you're done. Your spiritual life probably feels like a minefield. But even in this story, You're supposed to read it and say, my goodness, the rules can't be enough. That can't be it. There has to be more because there's too many gaps. Should I ask for more rules to fill in the gaps? Ah, I am exhausted. God, can you please come save me from these rules? The only thing that these rules do is make me show that I can't do it. I'm one misstep away from dying. And that's the point. If that is where God has you, then you're starting to believe the gospel. Lord, I I can have no security, no confidence in my own ability to fulfill the law and be a good dude. The rules accuse me. I need you, Lord, lest I die. And when you say that, in that moment, the heavy burden of the law slips away and joy and security emerge. And so what is your relationship with Christ like? Is it heavy and burdensome? Like you're walking in a minefield? Or is it secure and brimming with optimism? See, let this unnerving story about Nadab and Abihu shake out that tension in your soul. Let let the unnerving aspect of this story do its thing in you. Let me quickly conclude. The story is written to show you the insufficiency of the priestly rituals and the insufficiency of the law. We're not supposed to find too much confidence in those things. That's how this narrative works. But do you remember how we began the sermon series? We said that Jesus is explicit, that every story in the Torah is really preparing us to know him. How so? The main character in this story is neither Nadab nor Abihu. It's Aaron, the father. Aaron is a father, and he's got some baggage. He's got a store. He was the one with the bright idea of making the golden calf to worship while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. God should have killed him then, but he didn't. God was preparing Aaron to be the first high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel must know God intimately, what he is like. After Aaron's sons died... God said, and everyone look at me, look with me at verse three. Look at these are important, this is an important verse. It says, Among those who are near me, all right, so the near ones are the mediators, the priests. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That is, I will, uh, impure things are gonna get purged, all right, sanctified. They're gonna get purged. And before all the people, that is, all the far ones, the rest of Israel, I will be glorified. That means uh, they will know my glory. They will know me. All right? Now listen. Because of the death of Aaron's sons, the people learned of God and were spared of their own sins and death. Nadab and Abihu, they disobeyed. Aaron knew it. That's how come he held his peace and he didn't try to debate God or try to accuse him. And then Nadab and Abihu's bodies, are now profaned, were removed out of the camp, okay? Let me suggest to you that this episode taught Aaron about his God, his heavenly Father, who would also lose a son in the same way, but in a far more unjust way. I want you to think about this with me. Aaron's sons disobeyed, and they were killed, and they were taken outside of the camp, and their death allowed the far ones, the people, To know God and to live. God's son, Jesus, obeyed and he was killed outside of the camp, and his death as well allowed the far ones, the people, to know God and to live. Hebrews 13 says it like this For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned. Outside the camp, Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Y'all see it? Y'all see Jesus in the story? Don't be put off by this story. Don't be put off by this story. Let it wake you up. This ancient narrative teaches us about Jesus and how we need him desperately so that we might walk with him in gratitude and fear and trembling, but in security. May your faith not just be an exercise at staring at fences. I hope that it's about peeking over the fence and seeing an untamed, consuming fire called Jesus who loves you. Amen. Amen. Amen.